The General Planning Podcast takes you backstage to explore the world's decision-making and planning. We will get you into the minds of successful leaders and executives in our government and industry. You'll hear firsthand how they made some of America's historic decisions. I'm Bob Whittle, Deputy Commanding General at Army North, and my co-host is Mark Lavin, our Director of Strategy, Plans, and Policy. Join us as we learn about planning and strategy from our nation's best. Welcome back to the General Planning Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about the intelligence preparation of the battlefield and market intelligence. And we're pleased to have Major General Retired Spider Marks as our guest today. Spider was a senior intelligence officer during the 2003 invasion of Iraq and also commanded the U.S. Army Intelligence Center and School. After leaving military service, Spider has gone on to work in industry and the startup ecosystem. Among the many jobs that he is doing simultaneously right now, he is the chairman of the board for Mission Ready Solutions, the head of geopolitical strategy at Academy Securities, and a military analyst for CNN. Spider has a lot of family members that serve in and have served in the military. I've been fortunate to work for Spider's brother-in-law, Major General Retired Bruce Scott, and have also worked with his nephew, former Army Captain David Shams. Like Spider, they were both great officers and leaders. Spider, thanks for joining us today. Appreciate it very, very much, Bob. It's my pleasure. Spider, I thought we'd, we'd start and ask you to tell us a little bit about your transition from the military and then how you chose your current profession. Well, thanks, Bob. The, the transition from the military, being quite frank, it was quite difficult. I, I, I couldn't speak for others, but in my particular case, I absolutely loved what I was doing. I think professionally, I was at a period of transition. I had been in combat, the early stages of combat in Iraq, a lot of uncertainty, absolutely zero, in my mind, idea of what the long-term engagement would look like. Looking back on it, we see this certainly with greater clarity than we did at the time. But I, I grew up as an Army kid, and then I spent my life in uniform, and it was the life that I knew. And in fact, I married into a military family. My my bride's father had been killed in Vietnam. My father had been severely wounded in Vietnam. I mean, this is a way of life. And so this is what we knew. So the transition was, frankly, quite quite difficult. But I did it with my eyes wide open. I, I, know, I knew that there needed to be, at some point, a transition from service to a, another part of life. And, and frankly, it really is the arc of life, right? Where the more we look forward, I think the the fuller our existence here on this globe really is. And so I, I looked at transition as another mission. It had to be done. I embraced it. It was very difficult. You embrace that difficulty, right? Every time there's a difficult decision, you embrace it, you get close to it, try to figure out the intimacies of it, and hopefully you're making good good decisions moving forward. I went from the military, very large organization, as we know, very bureaucratic, as we know, and jumped right into a very big industry, very bureaucratic. And I found that I was frustrated with that. And so after very short order, I departed from that industry and really kind of hung my own shingle. And uh, 
created my own system and network of clients and was able to provide what I what I hope is value in terms of both a better understanding of those clients in terms of the geopolitical environment. What are those fault lines that are out there that every industry, irrespective of what it is, must be aware of and at least have a clear-eyed view of. I also was very, very fortunate to be able to engage in the development of future business leaders through another entity that I was working with, which which has really been very, very joyful and to see those kinds of advances take place. And I've also been able to help with the organizational design of companies. Clearly what we as military leaders bring forward is we understand organizational dynamics and making responsibility of um, and, and taking responsibility for our actions not being bashful about making decisions, being inclusive in our leadership styles and making sure all voices can be heard and participation can be inclusive. And so I've really been able to pursue those elements in this next phase of life. And I'm I'm saying when there will be another phase of life beyond that. But yeah, I, I would say in a nutshell, transition was, was difficult because I, I bumped into a few things, made some mistakes, acknowledged those mistakes, and then was able to recover and move forward from, from them. So it's not a clear and very smooth path necessarily for everybody. Well, thank you. I, I think it's interesting how the military is a, is a family business and, and how your father was involved. And of course, your wife's father as well. And I'm very sorry. I know, I think he was the first general officer to be killed in action in Vietnam. Is that right? He was the final general officer to be killed in Vietnam. In fact, when you when you look at his career, he, he was quite a soldier. That generation, my father-in-law and my father, I mean, these, these, I don't want to be flippant, but these dudes were warriors. They did some significant heavy lifting and didn't speak much about it. They were very taciturn, very focused, and in, incredibly, incredibly influential in my life. Um, I cannot grip hands with either of them today. They are both gone, but their presence is felt every, every day, as you can imagine. I, I can imagine for sure. And it, I thought it was also interesting that you're continuing to add value after leaving military service to national defense, which is fantastic. I'm going to turn this over to Mark Lavin. He's got a couple questions for you. Yeah. Hey, sir. So, you know, Colonel Mark Lavin here. Appreciate you again dialing in with us today. And so as a former army brat myself and career soldier, I wanted to say thank you to you and your family for your service. And I really do appreciate you sharing uh, that story about your transition, sir. You know, all, all of us service members at one point will have to, to face that. And I think it's very interesting how you used, you know, that term of facing it as a, as a mission. And if I can just really help, you know, ask you to unpack that just a little bit, you know, in terms of, you know, we start with our Sun Tzu, you know, type quote, if you know your enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. And so, you know, with that in mind, and I know that you're a Carl von Clausewitz fan as well, sir, but, but, you know, for the Eastern way of warfare lovers out there, you know, does this or do these con, these concepts of military theory also apply in industry from your experience? And, and you know, if so, do you have any examples of, of how they've worked or have not worked? Oh, Mark, absolutely. Great question. They're incredibly applicable. I, over the course of this journey that I've been a part of post-service to nation, and I would also suggest that when you depart military service, if you are 
fortunate based on longevity to quote retire, I would suggest never use that retire word because I hope you don't retire. I hope there is a another step that you that everybody will take and will continue to serve in some way and to serve your community or to 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 serve others in, in some particular way. But when I departed service to nation, um, it became very obvious to me that that business, irrespective of the type or the industry vertical, needed to be very very clear-eyed and very confident in terms of what that business was trying to achieve. It really is a definition of what the core element is of that particular business. And do you live that core? And are you true to that core? And are there, and that's when you then overlay the principles of war, which obviously we've all had an opportunity to study and apply, that truly is the definition of mass. Where do you cover down with all of your energy and most of your resources and your intellectual power to ensure that that core, that mass can achieve the desired objective, another principle of war, which truly is a principle of business. So if you if you understand yourself and in the definition of Sun Tzu, if you understand the enemy, which really is who are your competitors and what is the market? In many cases, you may not have competitors. You may be a startup and you are you know, you're the icebreaker in ranger school. You know, you're out there in front in winter ranger and you're breaking ice down in Florida and there's nobody in front of you other than a very cold, certain future. Um, it is really a clear understanding or at least your thought of what that understanding is and how you articulate it and how does this core definition of who you are match up with what it is you're trying to achieve within this market. That absolutely is is very essential to all businesses. They've got to do that. And the good ones do that. It's quite clear that there is a very strong handshake between business principles and military principles. Well, thank you, Spider. I happen to know that you're the honor graduate in your ranger school class as well. So I, I pay attention to your <laughs> yes. analogy there. Yeah, but many, many, many decades ago. Right? <laughs> but I tell you, you know, it's <clears throat> those stories just become clearer and and I would say probably not the least bit exaggerated over you. <laughs> of course. <laughs> well, we could probably talk about Ranger School stories for a good hour here. The, well, in the military, we have, when we look at intelligence, we have friendly force information requirements. We call them FFIR. I know you're very familiar with those. And what they do is they allow us to look at our units and understand things like how many tanks are still working, how many people are still in good health. Do companies in, in industry also have similar requirements or find it helpful to really know themselves and see themselves? And, and how do they do that? Yeah, they do. Every industry that I've had an opportunity to be a part of is very conscious of what their stance is. I think that's an appropriate term as well, right? I mean, whether you've <clears throat> been an athlete or not, your stance is how you engage in that particular endeavor. Are you ready for the serve? Are you ready for the swing of the golf, the golf club? Are you ready to take a blow from that, uh, from your opponent on the rugby pitch? Um, what is your stance? What is your intellectual stance? Have you thought through what it is the potentialities might look like? And so there really is a constant, constant effort on the part of industry to make sure that they understand what their stance is economically in terms of personnel, in terms of the allocation of resources, the definition of what their 
core looks like and how they are pursuing that. What does the talent look like that they are bringing on board? How do you diligence that talent? What are the expectations? And I would say one of the largest things that industry, I think, needs does quite well is the establishment of expectations. Look, this workforce that we have today is amazingly peripatetic. They will show up for five minutes and disappear on you. They'll decide they've got a better idea or a better opportunity someplace else. Or they'll they're smarter than anybody else, and they're gonna they're gonna disappear and go start their own thing. In many cases, there's great success with that, and in some cases, obviously, there's failure. So it really is a, a process of what I would call very flexible systems of how you put your finger on the pulse of your organization, so you better understand the term I love to use is your stance. How prepared are you for the potentialities that are out there? And then clearly some, I, I would say, are incredibly weighted in one direction more than the other. I mean, obviously, this and accountability is absolutely crucial. And then in today's world, the, the, the chief talent officers have an immense burden to make sure that you can find the talent, really communicate with the talent, meet them where they want to be which is a bit of an inverse from our experience in the military, I think in some degree, but our, our military is doing an admirable job of finding the talent. There are struggles, but finding the talent and meet, meeting the talent where they are and then bringing that talent on board in an, you know, an expedited and a, a stronger contributing way. So yeah, the systems exist and they're quite robust in industry. Yeah, hey, sir. This is uh, Mark here again. I, th I think that's fascinating the way that you described, you know, sort of the the, the business's stance, and it, and it almost reminds me as I reflect on that about how we have functionally aligned, you know, the broader information requirements that military organizations look for when we do planning. And so you also described, uh, on the other hand of that, you know, was the the opportunities, which you know I came to think about as you know the operational environment for us in the military, and so. You know, as you as you as you think about that, you know, are there are there ways that the companies, or or the ways the companies go out and seek and define their operational environment in terms of you know their competitors or market or market opportunities? Yeah, great question. You know, when you look at Steve Jobs, I think inarguably immensely creative individual as well as innovative leader, and those two are are. You know, it's a it's a distinction with the difference between creativity and innovation. And I think he did both amazingly well, just uh, almost unprecedented what he was able to accomplish. But he also understood that, you know, he, he believed, you know, if you build it, they will come. Nobody knew you needed an iPhone until he built an iPhone, right? We were all fumbling around. Everything was everything seemed great. And all of a sudden he comes up with this notion of an iPhone. And you go, wow. And now look, you know, fast forward. I mean, un unbelievable or maybe entirely believable. So that operational environment was, in many cases, he exploited what he saw, but it's what, it, 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 almost in legal terms, the environment was silent in certain areas. It spoke very loudly in some, and that's where the formation exists. That's where people follow. That's where people spend their money. But it was silent in this area of this immense digital transformation that got well beyond a phone interface to your access to the globe in the palm of your hand 
And nobody else saw that. No, no, I certainly didn't see it. My goodness. I mean, I was just kind of in that large formation, just moving along, thinking we were progressing and, and how incredibly modern and accessible everything was. Then you realize, my gosh, look what's out there. So the operational environment is being affected in many cases by industry. In fact, let me take an example. Look at the auto industry right now. You look at the auto industry and the first thing that comes to your mind I would say with some degree of confidence is, you know, a bunch of gearheads and, and motorheads and, you know, the shade tree mechanic and powerful engines, burning rubber, you know, smoke coming off the, the end of a vehicle as it makes an incredibly tight turn. The auto industry is a tech industry now. It's all a bunch of Silicon Valley guys. It needs to be. And if the auto industry does not progress in that direction, they run the risk of being irrelevant. So the operational environment is being defined by those that are in the environment. Bear in mind, Jobs was my, my same generation, right? What gave him this greater insight? He happened to be immensely creative, and he saw things through an entirely different filter. So it's also like the, um, it's like the energy industry. Where will alternative energy be formalized as a guarantee and an increased participant in contributions to the grid, however the grid exists? Well, that advancement is going to take place within Shell, within Exxon. That migration is going to emerge from those companies. So the operational environment is being shaped and defined by many of those that are in an op the operational environment but are, have not expanded beyond it. But they're moving in that direction right now. Do, do, does that make sense to you? Is that helpful? As I'm as I'm hearing you describe this, I mean, it really sounds like the you know the geopolitical you know environment almost of today and the future. And so, you know what I what I heard you largely talk about is you know finding opportunity, finding need as a company, and then they go after that to to meet those needs. But if I can just ask you maybe to pull the string a little further, maybe I'll I'll, I'll cannonball into this this world that you just described, right? And so if I use Apple. You know, so Apple and Steve Jobs, you know, you know, made those investments, you know, found that niche. But then you had, you know, Samsung and Google right behind, right? And so now you've got these two competitors in this space trying to, you know, sometimes collaborate, sometimes compete. You know, so have you seen, you know, you know, how companies, you know, will you know, navigate that or negotiate, you know, some of those different circumstances? Yeah, again, it's very difficult to get businesses, to, I, I want to say it's difficult to get them to cooperate, but they do when they understand that, you know, they businesses view the world, and I, it sounds very cynical, and, you know, there's a difference between the cynic and the skeptic, and the cynic questions why, the skeptic questions how, you know, and all our military formations had a whole bunch of skeptics, right? Because you always had great soldiers go, wait a minute, boss, I, I, I got a better idea on how to solve this problem. I'm not going to question why we're going to solve this problem. This problem is thorny. People are going to get hurt. This is very, very difficult. So I'm, I'm not cynical about it. I'm kind of skeptical about the recommended solution you put in front of me. So I, I'm, I, I look at business and I would say business, for the most part, views the world transactionally. It's kind of like, you know, without getting off onto a tangent, it's kind of like China, you know, China versus Russia. You know, China views the world through a transactional filter. And this war in Ukraine to China is bad for business. So I guarantee you, Xi Jinping told Putin, hey, end this thing. Don't use nukes because that draws the whole world into it. And that's terribly bad for business. 
but you got to get your act together because you're you're fumbling around you're acting like an idiot on the global stage get this thing over with because it's bad for business business doesn't want stuff that's bad for business so they view it through a transactional filter so cooperation exists when it benefits all and i, I think that's kind of human nature but i think it's unfair and i would never suggest that businesses do not cooperate because they do there is an inherent advantage to taking good ideas and finding the synergies that exist among many good ideas and, and that's why in you know the market today is a little less active because because of our challenges near recession inflation cost of money debt loads and things like that but when there's a good idea businesses find a way to come together and link arms and they'll subjugate their personal interests for the larger interests, which I think is quite admirable, but it's still transactionally driven. But at the end of the day, you hope that transaction provides a positive social change. And, and you would hope that everybody would be motivated that way. I cannot say with certainty that that's the case, but I can say, having been a part of it, that when companies join forces where there is a clear shared purpose, sounds familiar, right? Yes, a shared purpose, great things can happen great things can happen and and it shouldn't surprise us. And there really, really is goodness in business when you can define that landscape, shape it and move in that direction. It sounds a lot like how we view other nations. We always say we know that we can count on them acting in their own interests. And so businesses act in their own interests as well and where it is in their interest to align, they'll align. One of the planning tools we have in the military is priority intelligence requirements, very similar to those friendly force information requirements we talked about earlier. And priority intelligence requirements, or PIR, gather information about the enemy, their formations, where they're located, what their capabilities are. And in the business world, this must be important to companies as well. I imagine they have a similar thing, the priority intelligence requirement. Is that true? Yeah, very much so. And the PIR, interestingly, the businesses that I've been a part of and those that you can research and research casually, if you will, just by having your finger on the pulse of the market and again, in a very, very casual way, they spend most of their time viewing the market through the lens of the PIR as opposed to the competition. Um, companies that I was a part of we certainly knew who our competitors were, but we spent the preponderance of our time trying to understand what the market looked like. So we could either be first to market or we could be, we could differentiate ourselves in that market. And in many cases, it's a very crowded market and, and we know that. So why would the market want to lean in our direction and buy our X, whatever our X is? whether it's a service or it's a product or, or it's a, a capability or an access or whatever, why would they want to buy that and not buy our competitors? It's because we differentiated ourselves relative to the market. The fact that we were differentiated from our competitors was a byproduct of that. And I would say in our military, it's very much the same. We forever, forever in my experience as an Intel guy, I was more concerned with being capabilities-based 
than threat-based because the threat could change. And guess what happened in December 91? I mean, Soviet Union collapsed. You go, oh, who's the threat? You know, that's a long, longer tale. We can look over to the past 30 years of what, what the world looked like from 91 until today. Incredibly chaotic. And it's not necessarily about the threat. It's about different capabilities and how do you apply those capabilities in a meaningful way to secure our own national security objectives. So it really is a, the art is how do you read the environment? And in business terms, how do you read the market? What is the market looking for? And does the market know what it's looking for? And that's really the definition of that differentiator. So that's, uh, this is Mark again. That's, that's great to hear you say that. I, I can't imagine how far behind we would be the People's Republic of China or even Russia uh, today if you had not taken sort of a capabilities approach back in you know, the early 1990s. So that's, that's, that's really great to hear, you know, that we had forward thinkers and planners that were looking, you know, deep into the future. If I can just, you know, maybe just take a, a step back in terms of the more broader general planning sort of context. And, and one thing that we had a conversation about a little bit earlier today was about, you know, some of the core competencies or the, you know, the, the lack of some fundamentals within the competency of planning. And so planning is, is, is relatively a human endeavor, which I think what we could say is it, it, it's therefore it's flawed. And so is there a time in, in your career, looking back across that, where where the plan was wrong or the organization got it wrong, but the planning itself uh, to steal from, you know, General Dwight Eisenhower, you know, helped the organization or helped you as a leader, you know, kind of get back on to track, get back on track and learn from sort of the dynamic environment? Absolutely. I would say from a from a military perspective, there were a number of assumptions that we made in our plan for the liberation of Iraq that did not play out. And as the senior intel guy in that endeavor, <clears throat> there was much that I simply did, did not understand. I take ownership of that. Whether I was in a large formation or a small formation, it doesn't matter, but I take ownership of that. There were things we just, you know, I was, in some cases, I was a pig looking at a watch. I, I just didn't know until we stumbled into it. But the planning allowed us to adjust and to apply our resources, our capabilities to, there might've been a hesitation, there might've been a setback, but it gave us an opportunity also to reset, improve our stance, use the capabilities we have, and then move forward in an incredibly successful way. In business, it's very much the same. In fact, I, one of my, I, I, I want to say it's one of my, not necessarily my proudest moment, but it, I had to take a company through bankruptcy. I mean, who does that and feels good about it, but it's kind of a, it's the equivalent of a red badge of courage. You know, you, in, in this case, you get, you're not getting shot at and hit or shot at and miss, but your company is about to tank and you've got jobs at stake. You got livelihoods that are being challenged you have people looking at you with, you know, basset hound eyes, and they're trying to figure out what, trying to make sense of all of this. And you got to march through this incredibly painful process. The, the planning for that was essential because I, when I took, when I took, I took a particular job and I knew exactly what I was getting into. And I knew it was, you know, in business terms, it was a falling dart. And I had to catch that dart and it was incredibly hard. And so in advance of that, I walked through what those 
intellectual steps might look like. Hey, I'm not a bankruptcy guy. I have done in my life. But I go. I found the folks who understood it, the necessary steps that had to be taken. I mean, certainly got the legal counsel. But how do you embrace a team that is going through this immense chaos and then you can emerge on the other end? And so at the end of this chapter 11, which is a kind of a reorganizational bankruptcy, we emerged and I handed off the reins to because I was not going to be a part of this, this new organization. It was inappropriate that I leadership from within stepped up and it's a company in being doing quite well today. And I'm very proud of that. But the planning and the thoughtfulness, the the calm that we had to exude so that those around us understood that there would be some very tough decisions. There would be pain associated with this journey, but there would be an outcome. And in some cases, the outcome was not favorable to everyone in their minds, in their definition, but the organization survived. Many within the organization professionally survived within the organization Everybody else in the organization that departed went elsewhere and landed on their feet quite well, which was part of the planning process as well. So the 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 planning is necessary to give you the framework in terms of how you want to face these challenges. Clearly, planning was very important there, but, but also your leadership, empathy, and your approach to everything, I'm sure, was also critical. Well, Bob, thank you for that. <clears throat> but but it's what we do, right? I mean, it's how how we're trained, guys. You, you step you step up, you take ownership. We understand that accountability is a combination of both authority and responsibility. Those two are linked. Often in business, those two, authority and responsibility, are delinked. Um, responsibility, in my mind, means you you own it. Authority means you can stroke a check. To pay for it, I'm being quite blunt here, we we get that because as leaders in the military, as soldiers, the newest soldier today going through his his basic training understands that he is both a, has the authority and the responsibility to do the right thing and to make sure there's competency and you understand what's going on. You don't hurt yourself. You don't hurt your buddies. You do what's right, etc. In business, those two have to be brought together as opposed to being co-joined from birth in the military. So, well, I appreciate the comment, Bob, but yeah, I mean, that's kind of what we do. It's like breathing air. <laughs> well, I'm glad you brought up initial entry training soldiers that are joining the military right now. We, we definitely are, are hiring here in the U.S. Army, and we like to think that if, if America gives us their best, that we'll send them back better when, when we're done with that empathy and that leadership experience. So it's great to have a chance to, to mention that right now. I wanted to ask you on your, about your experience in industry with market intelligence, and maybe a, an anecdote or two about some of your successes and helping a company take a look at the environment and see what's coming and helping them make the right, right decision. One, one company in particular I had a chance to be a part of, I, again, I entered into a position I was the, uh, very specifically, I was the president of a college within a larger university. And when I took took over this college, very honored to do it, I knew from the outset that it, the curriculum within that college needed to be joined and needed to merge with another one of the colleges. In other words, 
I walked into my job knowing that I was going to work myself out of this job. And if I was successful, I would eliminate this job from anybody else coming in behind me. Needless to say, you know, the wheels of progress move incredibly slowly in academics. You know, as we as we say, you know, in academics, the knives are so sharp because the stakes are so small. You really, I came in, I said, guys, my college needs to belong to this. In fact, the curriculum within my college essentially was in two buckets. One bucket needed to go to one college and one bucket needed to go to another college. And that was my two buckets needed to merge with our IT and our business organizations within that university. So I had to walk through the because I looked at the market and I went, look, what we're doing separately really is not effective and is not fulsome unless married up with our technology brothers and sisters over here. And these offerings absolutely must be embedded in our business offerings. And everybody agreed. So it was an understanding of the market, not that I had a necessarily a, a, you know, a sharper view of that. It's just that I suddenly had the responsibility and the authority so I was going to be held accountable. That position had been vacant for a little bit of time. And it had also been filled, and I must say, quite honestly, by someone who was an academic and had been an academic all of his entire life and was incredibly talented, but saw the preservation of that position as being paramount as opposed to the enhancement of what those offerings might be able to provide to a broader audience, i.e. our students and those we wanted to bring on board, et cetera. In other words, in my mind, there was a real business case. There was let's let's be very let's be very blunt about it. We were going to make more money if I could get rid of this. I could save the university money, and we could make more money because we'd have more su students signing up for it because the offerings were really quite phenomenal. They were great. So that was an understanding of the market, and I didn't. I wasn't also because I was new to academia. I mean, albeit like all of us in the military, you know, we've had an opportunity to be broadened and, and have some additional experiences that involve the academic world, but we see it as a means to an end as opposed to an end in itself. So I walked in without those biases and was able to accomplish that within two years and was able to depart. So that that was a success. But I shared with you one of my challenges, uh, the journey through bankruptcy, which again was incredibly formative and eye-opening. I knew it. I knew the market was going to be tough, but my view of the market was we'd be able to emerge from that thing. And I was wrong. And we we, we emerged, but we emerged far different, a, a different organization than how we had progressed through this challenge. Both of those anecdotes are really helpful. And the one about the college, what I really took away from that was one, you were focused on on the mission, the purpose of the college. And at the same time, really blending your background in intelligence and operations to to find the way forward. Yes, sir. And I think I think also the you know you mentioned understanding your own biases and the biases of of the environment that you're in. So I've I've got the the last question to ask you, sir. I have the honor of it, and I'll give you a multiple choice. We like to ask our guests either a you know what what routine that you know do you follow or daily routine that helps you think or helps you plan sort of you know, what, what you're trying to accomplish. It can go as far back into your military career or even, you know, just what you did this morning or be a book that you've read, you know, over the last six to 12 months that has been very formative or you've enjoyed or you would recommend to others. Can I do all of the above? Yes, sir. We're on your time. 
<laughs> Can I do that? I would say both of those are absolutely critical. Um, the uh, really what you're asking is what is what does the the daily routine? I hate to use the word routine, but what is the what are the daily steps that I go through to make sure that I'm ready for the day and, and ready for whatever the future might hold? And it's a combination of what we did in the military forever, which is both physical and intellectual preparation. You know, do the work now so that you're 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 ready for the inevitable when it appears. So very much there, there is a daily physical part of my life that remains today inviolate, must be done. And that, that's a combination of stuff that I <clears throat> learned in the military. It's absolutely, and it, oh, it refreshes me immensely. Physically, it's, it's wonderful, but mostly it's intellectually incredibly rewarding to do that. And then the intellectual piece by itself, I would say, is I've always been a rather voracious reader. I right now have three books on my bedside table, and one of my grandsons will pop into the house and he'll look at that and he goes, so which one's most important? I go, well, they all are. <laughs> and which one do you decide to read? And I said, I don't know. I'll, I'll figure it out when I when I sit down. But so I'm, I'm very active in reading and and I think on a daily basis, I I read three newspapers a day as best I can when I can. And in the certainly in the digital world today, it certainly is facilitated. You can do that almost wherever you are. Um, and, and that just keeps me very, very current. And I need to I need to stay current based on how I've defined my myself and how I want to continue to make contributions going forward. So that's that's those are the ones that I think I think it's important to be both intellectually and physically active in my mind, because that keeps me charged up. Well, Spider, we really appreciate your time today. This has been very helpful. Looking forward to hearing this episode out there. And we'd love to have you on again if you, if you have time in the future. I'd, I'd, love to, I'd love to be a part of it. This is a wonderful initiative on your part. Gentlemen, this is superb. You're making a great contribution and you're touching... You don't know who you're touching. I think that's the best way to put it. You're influencing decision-making in areas where you don't necessarily know you're penetrating right now. And that's the real joy of what you're doing and the real contribution. So thanks for what you're doing, guys. And thanks for your service, obviously. Goes without saying, but I, I'd be I'd be a fool not to, not to tell you how grateful I am for your service to this great nation of ours. Well, thank you, Spider. We, we appreciate your service as well and, and appreciate how you're modeling how we can continue to serve when we do depart military service. So thank you for your time today. This is you Bob bet. Whittle and Mark Lavin out.